0: This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Professor at York University, Joe Baker. He discusses his work into talent identification and its groundings in an academic sense, the challenges of talent ID in a practical setting, as well as his new book, The Tyranny of Talent. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. so joe i uh, really appreciate you spending a bit of your friday morning with us um i know we spoke about it briefly there but how are things in canada are you all good
1: yeah things are great these days the weather is uh turning around and we're emerging slowly from winter which is always a positive thing in canada so it's uh yeah now we're, i've got friday morning talking sports so everything is good
0: Perfect. So um, I came across your work, if you like, actually via a colleague of mine who... Mentioned, uh, kind of tweeted out how interesting and stuff your book was and then uh, I guess I've done a little bit of due diligence in the background as, as to you as the practitioner and stuff and I thought this would be a really insightful and interesting conversation one for me and then hopefully for anyone listening as well but for anyone that doesn't know you do you want to give I guess a whistle stop tour in terms of who you are what you do and then I guess a brief summary of how you've got to that point.
1: Sure. Um, I'm a professor at York University in Toronto, not the one in the the UK. Um, And my research focuses on um, athlete development. That's a big umbrella, but anything that falls under athlete uh, development, not just young athletes, not just professional athletes, but anything that we can do to help understand that whole process of how we can use sport to help um understand development of us as individuals as humans as uh, as a species um every all of that falls under our umbrella so we look at yeah we look at um young athlete development how we can optimize that how we can improve it the risks associated with different types of approaches, uh, but all the way up to how can we use sport to help us understand what older adults are capable of, because some of the greatest sporting accomplishments we're seeing at the moment are in the older age groups where we don't necessarily expect those amazing performances. So that's, you know we we look at everything under that umbrella um the latest book that i wrote was uh, called the tyranny of talent and that one focuses on the issue of talent because um that seems to be on a lot of people's minds these days uh, talent identification how do we um, stream it into appropriate environments how do we maximize potential all of that kind of stuff
0: yeah, perfect. We'll definitely come on to that because I think that um I've, I've read a few few articles through synopsis on the on the book itself. And I think that um some, some interesting stuff and also some I guess useful challenges for the industry to actually decide on whether you know current approaches are are best placed or what best practice might look like. Um I guess from you from a personal perspective, why did this field resonate with you? What interested you? Could you just yeah describe that to us?
1: Well, that's a deep one. Um, Yeah, for me, I think, uh, and it's affected the way that I think about sport as an activity, it it was a life changing um, activity for me. Like I didn't do sport when I was young. It wasn't until I was in my mid um, adolescence that I got into sport in a serious way. And it changed my life, like to to put it bluntly. Uh, And so I'd like it's always been that empowering type of activity for me. And then later on in my journey, I got into more competitive, high performance sport as a triathlete. And, um, you know, I I think the question of what are are we capable of, uh, that was always one that I was interested in, even before the sport days, like trying to understand why some people are successful and others aren't. Um, That's always been a question I've been interested in. And so sport is one of these perfect sort of environments for looking at those things. We've got performance that is highly measurable. We've got people that are highly motivated. We've got uh, training that can be easily tracked. And so for somebody interested in finding out, you know, what are humans capable of? What am I capable of? There's no better context than sport.
0: And in terms of process, looking at that, because I can imagine, you know, what you're talking about, there are quite broad topics in terms of what, you know, what humans capable of is so contextualized and, you know, whether they're seven or whether they're 77, you know, has has ultimately an effect on that. What does your process actually look like to, I guess, refine what you're going to examine, what you're going to research, what you're going to discuss? And then, yeah, what what does that look like from you from an investigation point of view? How do you go around setting aside, um, trying to kind of divulge into those types of, um, yeah, those types of subjects, et cetera?
1: I think part of it is, um, you know, I, I, and maybe I learned this early on in my research training is that um, I'm not going to answer all the questions that I have with a single study. And so, you know, what we try to do is um, find where the the research interest is with the grad students, with the research team, um, and then carve out a small piece of research that we know we can do really well and, and make sure that that contribution is a good one. Um, and if you add up all those contributions, I think you can see that we've, you know, we've made some big um, impacts on the field from the uh, by doing a number of small things really well. Uh, and so that's kind of what we do. We look at who's the grad student coming in the lab. What are their interests? Um, how can we use that interest to help move into a different area? That's kind of how we got into the talent field. Was we had some people in the lab that were interested in talent forecasting and identification, and so we spun out into um, you know a bigger research program in that area. Um, part of it is funding, part of it's opportunity, part of it's who are the people around, part of it is what you know, what question did you wake up with this morning? Um, it's, you know, I think we're really lucky to have that flexibility in the way that we approach these problems because no day is ever the same. And you also don't, you know, you rarely do you get stuck in a quagmire of your own thinking because you're always being challenged to think of the next thing, uh, which is always really exciting and energizing.
0: And how do you manage it for subjects that maybe haven't been as established or haven't been as researched? Cause you know, I, I, have experience of this when i was doing my dissertation etc some rabbit holes you go down you realize actually there's not maybe enough research that's comprehensive within this field that allows me to do high level due diligence or can guide me into certain areas so what does that look like in terms of i guess yeah either creating the research or creating the, the programs to do it or um finding studies or research or other people that might have similar stuff that then we can be able to model this around Mm -hmm. our question that we're looking at
1: yeah it's definitely a concern especially with a concept like talent which uh seems to be everywhere but one of the early steps that we did in this area was to actually look at how much high quality evidence do we have uh, that's looked at this concept and it it was one of those like you said one of those rabbit holes that we went down and if, and it was like okay there's there's nothing here uh there there's nothing in this rabbit hole there's not there's no rabbits in here um and so you know i think the the interesting part, of, part about that is even though we don't know much about talent and there hasn't been a lot of um, you know, high quality research exploring this, it's starting to come out now. But it, when we looked at this 10 years ago, there wasn't very much. Coaches still have to make decisions about athletes uh, in the absence of that evidence. And so it's not enough to just sort of say, well, you know, we can't help you because um, I think that's, you know, that's a bit of a cop out um, with coaches. You've got to You've got to use the limited information that you have to make some kind of recommendation or suggestion to them while you await the latest evidence that might, you know, help you refine that uh, conclusion or change your mind about something. Uh, It's not enough just to say, well, don't do it because the sports system is set up in a way that they have to do it. Uh, And so how do you help coaches um, with those kinds of questions?
0: And uh, this will probably be the last question before before we go on to like that talent piece. But is how do you go around challenging coaches around their biases? Because obviously you you all have research sitting behind you, or now you've got more research in this space. And confirmation bias, I think, is something that we're all increasingly aware of. And you will have it in your research of going, actually, I need to answer the question, not what I think the answer is going to be. Coaches will have it regarding player. Um, scoring scoring or gradings or anything like that so how would you go around actually challenging confirmation bias within this space um so that you know coaches are actually assessing talent whatever that is in in the right way
1: i think we've been lucky in uh, the research that we've been doing because at the same time that we were doing this sort of broad um, examination of the how much information do we have what do we actually know we were doing a parallel research program looking at assessments of accuracy in selection and the um, you know the the potential efficacy of of prediction uh, and forecasting. And so, you know, when we have these conversations with coaches, we go in with the perspective that we're just one voice in the room where we represent the scientific uh, community, but there's other voices that are equally or maybe even more important. And and so we put the coaches in that conversation by saying, hey, we're here to have a discussion. I'm going to come at it from this perspective. You tell me what yours is. And then when you present the data to them around, you know, not only are you biased, uh, potentially biased in your decisions that you make, so is everyone. Uh, And this is an enormously complicated thing that we ask coaches to do. And by the way, nobody's very good at it. And so when you present them with that data that you make it an opportunity as opposed to a threat, and you know, you, you present it in a way that frames it as how do we get a little bit better, because that's Probably the, the window of improvement that we're looking at. Nobody's going to solve this thing. If it was easily solvable, professional sports throwing tens of millions of dollars every year at it, they would have figured it out by now. Uh, but can we get a little bit better in the way that we measure things, in the way that we think about things, in the way that we treat our athletes? You can see them start to engage with that. And those kinds of improvements, I think, are are, are what we're looking for
0: guess it's that marginal gains bit, right? If they can get a 0.5% better at assessing talent, that might allow them to compete better on the field. So I guess that's quite a nice piece to play back to them in terms of actually no one's good at it. And if you can get a little bit better at it, you'll see hopefully some positive outcomes at the back end.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: Perfect so when when we're discussing talent I guess it's important to begin with to actually define what we mean in this space so what if you do have one what is a definition of talent particularly if we if we keep this within the sporting sphere because I know we could go off everywhere in terms of when you start (laughs) adding other bits in but in the sporting sphere what what can talent be defined as?
1: it's it's uh it's maybe the fundamental question right like and it's interesting that um when we started to do studies of coaches and ask them that question we, if we asked a dozen coaches we'd get a dozen different answers and so one of the early things that we did was to draw a line in the sand and say this is how we're going to define talent and and see if there's evidence for it and the way we defined it was um, it, as innate, it has to be biological, uh, or it's impossible to separate it from skill or development or performance. So we said it has to be a uh, an innate quality that you have when you're born with, uh, or that you're born with, and um, but it's a process that evolves and emerges over time through interactions with the environment. So it's not a nature versus nurture dichotomy with talent being the nature part of that. No, there's there's an equation. There's a complicated interaction here that we have to capture. Um, and if you put somebody with talent in an environment, they'll uh, succeed in the right environment. They'll succeed and thrive in a way that a person that doesn't have the same amount of talent won't. Uh, and that's what talent is it, you it, you kind of get into a situation where um it's it's almost a a concept that doesn't have much practical value because you can't see how much talent somebody has until they've interacted with the environment for thousands of hours or years of practice um but we think that's a more defendable and justifiable um you know way of conceptualizing what this enormously complicated thing is and it also does dis, uh, it also does service to the complications and complexity of of coaches' jobs when they try to um, identify it and develop it.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned there, particularly around the environment that they come come into. Um, so, could you just, I guess, describe to us what some of the findings around that was? Because particularly when you look at the younger ages, you know, you might identify someone as high potential um because of the talent they have but then for whatever reason they may struggle for Um, put a lot of this in inverted commas struggle to fulfill their potential etc and that obviously lays often at the feet of the environment and whatnot so from your perspective just describe to us what effects you guys saw or think you saw um that the environment had on those with um with talent
1: we've looked at this in Um, a a number of different ways. And I think the big conclusion that we can take away from the environment stuff is um, anytime we make a decision or affect an athlete in a way that um, reduces their opportunities for development, whether that's to try a new sport they've never done before or opportunities with high performance coaches to give them good feedback or, or peers that are better that they could compete against all of those kinds of things. Whenever we do that, we affect the long-term success of that person. Um, that's the overwhelming conclusion from all of the work on environment, Well, it, whether it's relative age effects or birthplace effects or um, practice quality and quantity, the, the importance of socioeconomic status. All of those kinds of things affect long-term success by limiting or constraining opportunities for development. Which I think is a, a big takeaway uh, for for people in this area because it means that the system is actually the is can be the problem. Um, even though we set these symptom uh, systems up as being ways of providing op- um, optimal environments for athletes, in a lot of situations they actually work the opposite way by constraining opportunities for development. We. Calculated the odds of, um, of you know, of athletes making it in a number of professional sports. And the one of the worst is in the NBA for a, a pre high school or secondary school kid to make it to the NBA is about one in 70,000 odds which is not a problem if you know you chose the right one out of the 70,000 pre-high school kids, Uh, but we know that we probably don't. Uh, And if anything, the accuracy rates, if we wait until late in development, if we wait until the end of secondary school or the beginning of university, our predictions are really poor. So why would we think that they would ever be any better the further away we get from that outcome that we're trying to understand? Uh, And so for us, we try to get people to move away from focusing on the identification of talent early on and design environments where more of your athletes are going to be set up to um, to to be um, optimized or to, to be in an environment that's going to be the best environment for their development, as opposed to thinking you can identify the one or two diamonds in the rough. You're probably not. And if anything um, you're probably by doing that, you're compromising the developmental environment for the other athletes in your care. So I
0: guess the challenge that will be with that, and I'm talking probably about this from more a UK stance and I you know obviously fill in, in in the US and Canada how this this fills in there'll be a certain level of, of coach that provides and again various better or worse environments for people to be in so I over here in the UK I've obviously been a coach I've also been in the recruitment department trying to deal with this minefield in particular Um, And one of the things when you walk around, you might see coaches that scream and shout and stuff. And you're like, I'm not sure I'd want me or my kid to be involved in that environment. I guess one of the challenges of having such a broad net is that you may then expose children to environments that might not be optimal because of the way that adults are engaging. So how do you manage that balance between Allowing children to have good coaching or have good environments where they're going to get all those things compared to if you make it so broad, that actual the practitioners that are supporting the children might not be providing messages or might not be acting in a way that actually enhances their development from a, I guess, basic humanistic standpoint.
1: Yeah, it's a it's the billion dollar question, to be honest, because um it assumes that we know what the optimal environment is um for for a child for children in general, but for every child in particular. And I think we need to move away from that assumption because um, you know, I don't think we do, because we have too many examples of um athletes that have been in that kind of environment that you just described and have thrived and have been able to succeed um and so we have to be careful not to say well I wouldn't like it so therefore nobody would thrive uh I don't think we we can say that and I think that the, there's a fundamental problem with assuming that everybody develops in the same kind of environment I would say you know we can and I use this kind of analogy a lot when I speak to coaches, I I can't tell them a recipe for success, but I can tell them a recipe for disaster. And that recipe is if you do anything that's going to undermine the interest in that person coming back the next day to train uh, or to practice or to compete. And if we don't get those things right, it doesn't matter what we do after that, because the person's not going to be there uh, when they get personal agency or autonomy to actually make their own decisions. So, how do we get those things right? And if we get those things right, we probably are are doing as maybe at this point in our understanding as good a job as we can. And it's not about just enjoyment and making sure everybody's having fun because we're we're more complicated than that. If people are, challenged at the right level, if they're seeing their skill develop, then they're going to want to come back the next time. We're not motivated just by enjoyment. We're motivated by competency. We're motivated by uh, improvement. We're motivated by challenge. Uh, And so if we get those things right and we get our athletes coming back day after day, then we're probably meeting those um, elements of optimizing the skill development environment. If not, they're going to get bored. They're not going to enjoy it. They're going to want to do something else. Uh, So we can use these kind of simple indicators, I think, of, of, um, you know, uh, to help us understand progression.
0: And so how would you assess progression?
1: Yeah, that's a tough one, because it's such a, like, we know that this is a nonlinear process, and that some athletes are going to proceed at rates that are quicker than other athletes, but that doesn't really mean much in the long term. Um, at least from a predictive standpoint., uh, and so, like for me, I think progression uh, is related to those simple indicators of of um engagement, persistence and and motivation. If we see those things, um if we see demonstrations of those kinds of behaviors, then I would say we're probably getting the right elements of progression. Because the data on uh, time on task and and uh, skill development means, you know, it, it's very clear that if we can keep people with their time on task, that keep them practicing, the skill development will improve. Uh, and so, how do we not mess up that fundamental relationship?
0: And so, when we're the time on task bit, I think it's an interesting one because. Um again this is i've spoken to some coaches that have kind of dual athlete dual athletes or dual sport athletes. Traditionally in the UK, I would say that that probably isn't as much. You probably have a main sport that you'll play to a high level and then you'll probably play some school sports in and around that. But we're different to the US or Canada in terms of, you know, they might have a hockey season and then soccer or football, then baseball. Whereas over here, it's like football for nine months or soccer for nine months of the year. And then you might do a little bit of cricket in between with the school and stuff. So when we're talking about that time on task, how much does the multi-sport dual athlete strands come into this, and how much of it is an early specialization piece of practicing skills that are specific to that sport?
1: Good question. Um, I think you know we've done a lot of work on early specialization and um, and the sort of risks of of that type of behavior. Again, it's one of those rabbit holes where you, you go down and you find the evidence down there is not quite as robust and conclusive as you thought. Um, so we're pretty careful to not say, um, hey, specialization's the villain in this story of athlete development, because there's too many examples of athletes that have, have achieved superstardom from a specialized perspective. I think what we're trying to argue is we've got to be a bit more nuanced and and, and maybe we need to start with an understanding of what children need in their development first. And so, you know, if if our broad long term athlete development model says that we want to have a broad exposure to movement uh, when they're young, but all they want to do is play football. Well, how do we ensure that they get that movement experience in football so that it doesn't set them up for injury later on? It doesn't compromise long term, you know, physical development. We can do that. If the purpose of broad multi sport engagement is not about movement experience, it's about enjoyment, then we can do that too. Like, I think if we come back to what's the purpose of the engagement at this stage of development for this developing human. Uh, and then figure it out from there based on those kinds of recommendations. I think that's a much more fruitful way than, you know, this is the way we do it in football. This is the way we've always done it. Um, I think we can do, we can definitely do better than that.
0: And what's interesting of of what I hear you kind of repeat here a little bit is around that at times, and I've probably read this, you can feel like it's all or nothing in terms of how people have opinions on it. So it's like, you either have to be constraints-led approach or your skill development, or you have to be early specialisation, or you have to be multi-sport. And it's like, there's no ground for sitting in between the two. You have to either pick one and then you kind of die on that hill. But it seems like, I guess, from some of the research you've done and maybe some of the, the writing you've done, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but actually there is discussion of nuance around what does this individual present? And actually, can we contextualize their environment their um yeah their experience around this individual to then hopefully provide them with some of the characteristics that might give them success further down the line
1: yeah absolutely and i think if there's one you know if there's one thing that i hope to accomplish in my career it's to get people anytime they see that kind of a dichotomy To just be able to say, nope, I don't believe you were more complicated than that, because almost every dichotomy we have early specialization versus diversification, um, talent versus no talent, deliberate practice versus deliberate play, like all of these kinds of things, they oversimplify the argument to the point that they cause more um confusion then they help uh and so that's really one of the main points of the book was we need to be thinking about talent from this same kind of perspective there is no threshold at which you're talented and before that you're not talented uh it's more complicated than that and it should be because that's why we love sports so much if it was simple to explain how an athlete's able to do the amazing things they do we wouldn't find it that interesting it's the the complication and the sophistication that we find so interesting after you know 150 years of of football we still watch teams of players and we still see new things and creative things every game that's the complexity of sport that's not captured in these sort of simple uh, certainly not in these dichotomies that we see
0: and again i'm putting you on the spot here a little bit but in terms of like examples of this where you've you've got two clear examples and maybe someone who's specialised really, really early and someone who's diversified and then they've ended up you know, both in the NBA or both playing soccer. Have you got any that, that particularly stood out to you in that space?
1: I think the 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 one that I've seen most recently is the um, Roger Federer and and Novak Djokovic, right? Like those are Federer was a, a generalized, diversified sort of um, athlete, and Djokovic was a tennis player from the very earliest days. He didn't do other sports, and those are the two maybe you know two of the three greatest tennis players of all time they've reached the exact same standard uh i think you know we've we've seen in books like range uh david epstein compared federer and and tiger woods those are apples and oranges to me i think it's you've got to take athletes in the exact same sport uh and look at that comparison and, and i think the federer djokovic one is a good example
0: and then looking at it from a uh because this always fascinates me looking at it from an environment point of view, like them growing up would have been completely different as well. you got one in Serbia, one in Switzerland, in terms of what they've got access to the type of coaching, the type of environment, you know, you look at um, players that come out of like war stricken countries. I'm always like, how is it possible that during that time you're able to manipulate your, your way through and end up? So I guess, from you when you were going into this research did those type of questions come up for you as to yeah like just the diversity of experience environments must be so vast that actually it must be a minefield to try and work your way through it
1: it is and i think that's what's reinforced this movement away from simplicity and and these kinds of dichotomies it's the reality that you know, that there is such complexity in, in the, just, if you move out of the layers of that onion, starting with the athlete and the current training that they're doing, then you get into this place where, you know, everything is always an end of one. Like everything is always determined by what's the best thing for that specific athlete at this point in time, based on their background and based on their sport and where their sport is going, but that's not that helpful for coaches to always say you know there's no science it's all art um well that's not that helpful and so how do we find a middle ground that helps us get more athletes on the positive end of that trajectory than the than the negative end i think that's you know for me i think that's the best we're ever going to be able to do because we're too complicated the we're too complicated the environment is too complicated sports continue to evolve over time uh you know you can imagine if you were a sprinter before the days of usain bolt and you were a nice short sprinter with high fast leg turnover and then this giant comes along and just changes the paradigm of sprinting well, now what do you do? Um, like this is the, again, this is the complexity that we're talking about when we when we work in high-performance sport. The target is always changing at the same time that the athletes are continuing to evolve.
0: So this, this next question may be a challenging one, and it probably comes from, you know, working within this industry, um, and particularly in the UK where talent ID is very young looking at you know particularly in soccer six seven eight year olds and then at nines they go into academy football and begin that journey for however long that is obviously we'll move on to what optimal may look like in a a minute but in terms of those who that is currently a a career path or whatnot or that is their 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 job and they got to try and identify those with with high potential that, or that yeah let's let's go with high potential what would you say are some key characteristics that you would point them towards that might allow them to spot individuals
1: again that, that is a challenging question um i think i would i would focus i would focus on um those issues that we talked about before the motivation perseverance and you know the because of the engagement in high-quality practice is so important for skill development. If we can predict who's who's better at engaging in high-quality practice, who's going to self-regulate more, who's got the personality to want to train harder and longer. Um, If we can predict those kinds of things, that's maybe as good as we've got at the moment um, for predicting long-term success. So those, again, those are the kinds of things I'd be looking for, but they're also the kinds of environments I'd be developing to promote. Um, How do we promote a person's persistence? well, you don't do it by giving them negative feedback in front of their teammates so that they're embarrassed. Well, okay, then I don't do that. Like there's, there's ways that we could approach the, the selection exercise, but also the developmental, the way we construct the developmental environment to promote those kinds of things.
0: And so I guess, is it trying to mirror individuals that you think might respond well to your environment as well? And Mm -hmm. Um, because if you've got sorry I'm trying to formulate this in my head as as I'm talking but if you've got an individual that you know they just want to compete that's all they want to do they want to win them being in a highly developmental program that goes listen we're not fussed about winning but what we are worried about is the way you engage with home practice and the way that you Um, practice if it's your ball striking on your non-dominant foot we want to see you do that in the game even if it's a detriment to team performance if you mix that with an individual who's only focused on winning there's kind of a conflict between what they are as an individual and what you are as a as an environment which Mm -hmm. might I guess uh, diminish the amount of development that they may have is it is it kind of parents and, and players and, and scouts and coaches and trying to mirror up those environments that actually these are individuals that are maybe better suited for certain reasons
1: i think you're on the right track i would say it's that kind of uh, more nuanced discussion that we need to be thinking out for uh, for athletes i would say especially early in the developmental system like at the academy stages Players aren't fixed entities. They may think that they're a certain type of player, that they approach the game in a certain type of way, but no, um, their frontal cortex is still developing. There's so much development that's occurring there, but in the next 10 years before they emerge as a professional player, how do we understand the things that they're going to need to have as a professional player and design a system that um, takes those things into account and develops those kinds of things? Because being the greatest. Soccer player or football player in the world at 13 is not the goal of a 13-year-old. It should be to be the best football player in the country and the world at 23 or 25. Well, if you have the sit them down and have that conversation, at least to, to the extent possible, uh, of saying, here's why I need you to engage in practice, and here's why I need you to be taking more shots with your left foot, because you're you're weaker with your left foot. And if you want to dominate 10 years from now, then I need you to be practicing it now. There's a time at which you can have those kinds of conversations with, um, with athletes. Certainly I don't know that you could have them prior to adolescence. I think the brain development and all the um, neuropsychology stuff would say that we don't see that kind of reasoning in uh, kids. We start to see it in adolescents. When it happens, you can make the athlete your agent for change uh, by getting them on board and convincing them on the, the, the strategy. Um, it doesn't need to be parents it doesn't need to be all driven by the coach you can actually if you can you convince the athlete to to take that on makes a coach's job so much easier but there's a sweet spot at which you can actually have that conversation
0: and how does it change between uh at the top end so that we're talking about performance center the developmental pathway because yeah in terms of obviously talent id with the younger ones they're far away from their goal but those challenges still exist in the performance space you know teams still spend hundreds of million dollars on a pitcher that then goes on to struggle or you know a point guard who's meant to make their team all of a sudden breaks their team and you know we see it year on year the draft system where someone's going to be the next best thing and then four years later they're out of MBA all together and are trying to find an alternative career so how does it look how's it different between the performance aspect at the top end to the development phase what what, what are the differences in that space
1: It's interesting that you raise the question because at the moment we're developing a a research program that looks at the same kinds of questions at the professional level. Like is part of the reason why we see athletes that are busts in the draft because we don't actually look at them as developable um, uh, athletes. We look at them as commodities that are fully realized, but um, people that work in professional sport know that there's still a lot of development that needs to happen. There's things that early athletes need that later athletes don't need. And it is the system providing those kinds of things. So you can take the same approach. What does the person need in order to be able to thrive in that environment? What are the developmental, like they're humans after all, we should be able to predict what kinds of things they want because they're, they want the same things that other humans want, social connection, connection, competency opportunities, those kinds of things. Uh, and so how do we design an environment that provides those at at every level going through and not assuming that we get to a place where those needs um, stop that might be why we have lack of success at the professional level so we try to promote the same kind of um you know it's a it's a broad approach it's a general approach but it's what's let's start with the basic needs that this person has as a human. And if we meet those, then we can think about performance and skill development needs. Okay, we've met those. How do we? And then we move on to other needs that they might have long term health, transition out of sport, all of those kinds of things. Just the target changes, but the approach is generally the same. What do they need? Is it providing it? Uh, can we provide it? And um, why aren't we providing it?
0: And then when you're trying to um, discuss this with coaches, And ultimately, there's I I think if you say to most coaches this type of conversation and go, listen, we're going to try and get you, and I'm gonna this sounds a bit harsh, but a Tom Brady over a Ryan Leaf in terms of performance base. I'm not talking about them as potential. How do you get them to have that longer term vision of actually going well? we're still going to be patient with Orion Leaf. We're still going to realise that actually, even as the number one pick, he's going to have issues that we're going to need to support him with, like they did with Brady, because Brady was a six-round pick, they gave him time to develop all that other stuff, and actually, we're going to work people off of the, um, the content of their character, or things that we think we're especially skilled in developing, so we know that if they've got a area they struggle in that that actually we we've got the foundation within our building to support that how do you have those types of conversations with coaches to allow them to maybe go you're gonna zig when others zag in terms of the type of players you have access to or pick or anything like that but actually this might allow you to be more have higher levels of performance at the back end of it
1: I think it starts with um the the data that we have on the the poor accuracy of the draft selection you start with the room for improvement and the need for improvement um and you know because a lot of times people that work at the professional level um they get there because of the skill and and uh, you know the brand they've built for themselves um, and so we have to, to a certain extent, we have to deconstruct that because we want them to be open to change and improvement because we know the accuracy rates are pretty poor. The other part of the conversation that we have is, um, is to get them to really understand their system and what their system develops. Uh, and so not to assume that every player is infinitely developable in every system, but What's this, what are the things that your system does well in terms of player development? And then seek out those types of players. If there's other players that won't thrive in your system, then they're not actually equal in value. They're lower in value, all other things being equal. Uh, and so having those kinds of conversations, because that's a bit of a paradigm shift in the way that we think about high performance sport. Um, there's this tendency at least in north american sports that when you choose players you choose the player that's got the greatest value available which is a general thing where we're trying to convince them to look at it who the player with the greatest value in your system which is a subtle change but an important one i think
0: yeah no 100% i think um i i read it a lot on on the you know you go to draft season and they say are oh, the the top 100 players and uh you know gms will say well we'll pick the best player available it's like is that the best player to you or is that the best player in these 32 drafts boards that almost all look identical because you haven't taken into consideration any other factors around your context
1: yeah absolutely and i think that's you know the draft has been around for a long time but they've they've always had that that mindset which is a very economics one like you can you can put people in a box in terms of their value but that assumes that that value is fixed and we you know from because maybe my background is more developmental I look at it, well, yeah, the person's potential at that point might be fixed, but you, after you've drafted them, they can go in any number of ways based on how you treat them and the opportunities you provide. For me, I think understanding that trajectory post-draft is uh, is much more important.
0: And um, when you talk about the inaccuracy of, of drafting in that space, and you mentioned the data, is there any particular, particular data points that stand out to you to how challenging that
1: type of selection processes um i think there's a couple things there like we know that that draft selection process is again one of these processes that people on the outside look at and think it's just a simple sort of linear relationship but it isn't we know that the the draft for example goes through phases the nba is different because it only has two rounds but in these multi-round drafts the the players they choose in the first two rounds, the the strategy they use there is different than the ones they'll choose in the middle and the ones they'll choose at the end. It isn't a linear process in any stretch uh, of the imagination. They're, they're, the first two rounds, the accuracy rate's much higher than it is in the middle. And then it, there's, this, there's a little bump in uh, accuracy later in the draft. So for us, it's those kinds of things that force us to look at this from a more complicated way. I think there's, you know, general conclusions about how poor the drafts are that major league baseball is worse than the NBA, for example. But that makes sense because major league baseball drafts people not to go into the major leagues. they draft them to go into the development system? They have a whole separate phase of development that that's what they're drafting for. Whereas the NBA is drafting people who can play in the NBA next season. Uh, so, again, you know, we look at these things as if they're equal, but they're not.
0: And this probably brings us quite nicely to my next thing. So, and it's going to be very, very challenging because I don't think you're going to get a clean slate. But if you were to have a clean slate that allows, uh, the optimization of talent development all the way through to the pro ranks, et cetera, what would that look like from, I guess, your opinions slash the research that you guys have done? What what would that space look like to help the most number of high potential people make it through in some capacity?
1: I'm going to cop out and say it's impossible to know. Um, But what I will say is some of the things that we're doing right now is um trying to quantify the depth of um the, the the need in the system in order to develop that one person because we have a tendency to look at that one person with a gold medal or or a championship win and assume that they you know we just need to figure out what their um development process was And I think it undermines what the real important thing is about what does the system need to look like. So for that one person to emerge, if we go back to the MBA example from earlier, how many of those 69,999 people that didn't make it to the MBA How many of those people are absolutely necessary for the one person who does? Um, What do they need to look like? What skill development do they need to come? uh, Do they need to have? And it started with this discussion that we had with some professional sports that we probably don't want to get that good at talent identification, particularly early on, because if I could tell you when you're nine, you know what, you're never going to the Premier League. Why would you keep playing football at the level that I need you to for every player that is going to the Premier League. They need you to play against. They need you to strive against. They need you to be almost as good as them so that they put in more time on task. I don't think we have a real good understanding of that um, that level of you know uh, elements in the system um, in order for it to function, not just effectively, but efficiently, which for a lot of sports is a bigger question. I think
0: that's a really interesting point that you're raising there in terms of um yeah the longevity of it and actually how people push others to do well um and you know maybe it might have been a real humbling defeat or it might be being third in the group behind two other high performers at your ages 10 and through 14 and you're constantly trying to beat them which is actually allows you the resilience to find a way when you then get to 16 or 18. I think yeah it's really interesting of what I guess you can put it in a vertical, the the support people around that athlete's journey actually does
1: for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The athletes are part of it, but the, you know, we're looking at it more as a development ecosystem because I think the athletes, athletes, coaches, parents, but officials, uh, administrators, the people that are fundraising for the teams, like, all of those people have ownership at least to a certain extent over the success that the system has but they're essentially under if if they're recognized at all they're underappreciated for sure
0: and then what what's next for you along this journey as you said the, the, the books come out and I don't well i think it's done really well from all the all the bits that i've read on it and it's resonated with a lot of people what what does the next step look like what does the next evolution of this look like yeah what what type of area are you looking looking into moving forward
1: well, the the good thing about the book was I um, I laid enough enough problems down that I'm never going to have to retire anytime soon. So um, I think that's the that now that I've sort of laid out this broad foundation of the problems, I think I've I owe it to the field and and to my colleagues to try to figure out how well how do we move forward and how do we try to solve some of these things. Um, The projects that we're working on at the moment are with that in in mind, Uh, more complicated modeling, better approaches to long term athlete development, better assessments of environments, all these kinds of questions that you've raised today. Um, how do we know what's an optimal environment? Well, okay. Um, that's a good question. Let's try to figure it out. How do we measure persistence and motivation and and uh, passion um, early in the development system? Yep. We're, we're trying to figure that out as well. Uh, so it's all of those kinds of things, um, which again, it's, they're big challenges there, but there, and there's a reason why the field hasn't sort of tackled some of these issues before, but I think because of the, interest we're seeing in this area the the relevance that it has for coaches the way that we've been able to engage with coaches and other stakeholders um i think the time is the time is ripe and it's um really exciting to to be doing some of the work that we're doing right now
0: perfect and before i ask you the last question which i i asked for everyone um where can people find the book refresh everyone of the name of it all of that type of stuff if they're interested in this topic
1: Yeah, so the book is called the tyranny of talent, how it limits and compels athlete achievement and why you should ignore it. And at the moment, it's only available on Amazon. um, But the audio book is coming out this summer, I just have to find the time to finish up the audio recording um and my uh, research program you can find me at um www.yorku.ca slash baker j uh, or you can find me on twitter um at baker j york you and anybody that wants to continue this conversation i'm always happy to to talk about anything to do with sports especially coaches that have unique problems that's that's kind of what we're here for
0: perfect and so the last question for me um which is if i was to speak to any, I guess, the postgrads that have worked with, or anyone who works in your faculty, etc., or you've worked with in this space, how would you want them to describe you in three words and why?
1: Oh boy, passionate, uh, humble, and unassuming. I think would be the the three that I would go. Uh, I would go for.
0: Perfect listen joe really appreciate your time thank you so much for that i'm sure you'll have a lot of people getting in contact to to carry on this conversation and hopefully uh yeah we we can stay in contact regarding your future work
1: yeah that'd be great thanks michael i had a lot of fun today